Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alenco Animal Health. Today, a visit to the past, a gloomy past which one hopes will never, ever occur again. I refer to the great cattle price crash of the 70s. We'll delve into the memories of an emerging grazing empire family in the western Queensland and a stock and station agent in the south and a bloke who knows more about the history of the processing industry than just about anybody else in Australia. And let's start there with Stephen Martin, author of a wonderful book about the beef industry and it's called The World on a Plate. Stephen Martin, you're on the grill. Thank you, Kerry. Now, we're talking about the great price crash of the 70s. What was the basic underlying cause of, the, of that price crash? Well, I think there are a number of uh, factors. Uh, it basically comes back to supply and demand. Uh, too much meat, uh, not enough markets for it. Um, a series of, uh, of uh, decisions taken as a result. Um, you know, herd liquidation, uh, collapse of market prices. But also there was a set of events uh, triggered by uh, a political decision by some of the oil-producing countries to uh, place an oil embargo on what were important beef customers such as uh, the US and Japan. And, and that, that there were repercussions around the, the whole trading block, blocks, weren't there? I mean, it didn't impact just on those countries. It swept through entire economies. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, probably to, to, to fully understand it, uh, Probably doesn't hurt just to, to realise that uh, you know Australia had come out of the Second World War uh, still very much tied to uh, a UK traditional market of, of quarter beef, um, and uh, uh, we also had a 15-year um, trade agreement with uh, uh, pre, um, with the United Kingdom, uh, essentially that would take all surplus uh, production out of Australia. Um, so, uh, 1960, we saw the US market explode and and uh, as uh, U.S. Uh, importers and uh, U.S. processors uh, only spent a small time uh, um, playing with uh, frozen quarter beef and basically said to Australia, if you want to be in the U.S. market, you need to start supplying boneless beef in cartons. Of course, that uh, generated uh, significant investment in Australia uh, of uh, building boning rooms uh, in order to supply that market. Also, uh, it was a, a new breed of entrepreneurial uh, spirit in the US, in, in the Australian export business and uh, trading in the US. A lot of consignment selling, suddenly, um, you know, exporters putting meat on the water, unsold, looking to try and pick the, the highs of the market in the US. So you had that sort of growing enthusiasm, brand new market, uh, whole new investment. The whole 1960 to 73 period really saw. Uh, not only just the American market, but uh, a range of other markets grow, in particular uh, Japan. So I think uh, it was about uh, 67, 1967, Japan opened up uh, with a 14,000 tonne beef quota, which then raised around about 24,000 tonnes in 1970. And then uh, they had plans to increase uh, that quota up to 160,000 tonnes by 1973. At the same time, you you also had um, 1968 uh, in this growing enthusiasm, the first trials of chilled beef uh, into Japan, and obviously a successful chilled beef market would do give Australia significant advantages uh, in Japan. And then in the uh, end of 68, we had the first container ships start to come to Australia, and again that entrepreneurial spirit saw well you know why um, why can't we take the new container technology and use it to sell chilled vacuum packed uh, primals uh, 
into the Japanese market. And, of course, the first commercial shipment started in 1970, and that trade went very well. So you've got growing uh, sort of confidence in, uh, in, in the global markets um, and prices accordingly. Stephen, it must have been booming because we had all this confidence and we had a herd, national herd of 33 million. Our beef consumption was probably over 60 kilos per person, I think, from memory. And then crash. Did it happen virtually overnight? Well, look, as, as I understand it, and uh, you know, as you said before, this is 50 years ago, but um, essentially what had happened in uh, just a, a little bit of history, but it's important probably to understand uh, 1967 was a six-day war in the Middle East in which Israel captured the, the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip from Egypt and they captured the Golan Heights from Syria and uh, the West Bank from Jordan. So six years later in October of 1973, a coalition of uh, Arab states uh, decided to uh, return the favour and uh, attacked Israel on what was the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, I should say. At the, very, at the same time, American support for Israel was immediate and, and huge. And so the uh, coalition of uh, Arab petroleum exporting countries, led by Saudi Arabia, uh, placed embargoes, oil embargoes on the United States, um, as well as uh, a few other countries, Japan, Netherlands, United Kingdom, uh, and um, among a couple of other European countries. So what you had overnight, what happened overnight, was oil prices rose 300%. It would be nice today, $3 a barrel for, uh, for crude oil, up to around about $12 a barrel, but reportedly much higher uh, in the United States. And, of course, country like Japan having uh, oil embargoes uh, from the Middle East, 90% of its import uh, imported oil came from the Middle East. So... The first reaction was uh, Japan, the Livestock Industry Promotion Corporation, which um, administered all the uh, all of the quotas. They immediately cancelled the existing quota, and together with the European Union, uh, they um, uh, closed all uh, beef markets uh, to protect uh, their foreign currency as well as um, their livestock growers. So suddenly, uh, you had uh, market prices starting to fall, and fearing losses, you began a, a liquidation process in both Australia and the United States where there also was record livestock numbers, I think up around about 130 million at that stage. They started to uh, to liquidate. So as I understand it, in 1973, uh, it was a good season in Australia and many cattle producers tried to hold on for a while, uh, hoping that the markets uh, would change. But that didn't happen. It, all it did is give a lag to the rationalisation process, process that was coming. And so by uh, what, what you largely had within a couple of years is just too much product, no markets to sell it to, and prices falling uh, substantially. Uh, I think by 1980, uh, the cattle herd had been reduced by over 6 million head. And then with drought, that cattle herd fell further to around about 22 million by 1984, which when you look at it is probably over 11 million head of cattle uh, removed from the Australian herd over that period. That's amazing. That's an amazing uh, number. You just said quickly 11 million doesn't seem much, but 11 million is about uh, 30 or 40% of the current herd. Yeah, so look, and, and what, what, what happened in that process? So, so obviously the first reaction was that abattoirs in Australia, both domestic and export, were running at full capacity to try and manage this liquidation. But as, as the, the numbers started to, to fall and herd rebuilding started to occur, what you largely had in Australia was then too much capacity for, for what was a much smaller herd. 
And the rationalisation process began in Australia in, in, in the beef processing sector that within a, another decade or so resulted in, in over 90 meat processing facilities closing their doors. So that was a significant impact. You know, that took probably another 10 to 15 years to, to see its way through. But uh, basically what you had was, uh, you know, overcapacity, reduced livestock numbers, changing technology, you know, rising costs, changing regulations, and uh, a whole lot of processing capacity um, that was uh, not the most efficient in Australia just closed their doors. Yes, there, there used to be, I can recall this, there used to be a meatworks in every second big country town, and that signalled the start of the uh, of the diminution of those works around the country. Yes, it is. And uh, the end result of that was there was a lot of pain and aggravation both uh, for the companies that closed their doors as well as for the country towns in which you know, processing was a, an important uh, part of the, the local economy. But what you've ended up with is a far more globally focused industry, uh, much more efficient and uh, globally competitive. Now, after the crash and Australia's still recovering, was it uh, true that Europe started to stockpile beef and that caused a further problem for exporters like America and Australia? Yeah, it did. So, so what you had was not only the liquidation occurring in Australia and, and the United States, but it also started in the, in the European Union, which led ultimately to what they used to term the beef mountain of subsidised beef product uh, ending up in cold store in, uh, in, in Europe which then ultimately to try and remove was subsidised into markets that Australia had started uh, to develop. So um, they were re-exporting uh, this beef, were they? They were. They were re- at subsidised prices into Russia and a range of other markets because actually an important point, what had happened uh, is that despite the, the impact in the United States, uh, herd re- uh, the uh, herd liquidation that was taking place and pressure on prices, the US did not close their market. And the United States was, in fact, at that point, Australia's uh, largest beef import market. So that was quite a positive for the Australian industry. So when Japan closed their doors, 50% of beef exports out of Australia were covered under US quota, and 50% of it uh, was not. And there was a diversification scheme in place in the US quota scheme in which if you ship double the amount into a diversified, low-priced market, you earn quota to ship to the United States. And in those days, it used to be that if you made that shipment, say, in March uh, to the diversified market uh, at whatever cheap price would move the product, you earned entitlement to ship to the United States in the next month. So this really drove significant entrepreneurial spirit into shipping into markets like uh, Russia, Poland, Yugoslavia, Egypt, Iran, markets that Australia had not been in before. And that was certainly quite a significant uh, positive for the Australian industry. But going back to your first point, what happened, those uh, European uh, beef mountain sales, was they started subsidising product into the same market. The, the Europeans, I'm amazed. No, I'm not. I'm not at all. Not yeah. the least bit amazed. Uh, the, uh, the ramifications for the price crash have gone on, obviously, for decades. Did anything good come out of that price crash in the long term? Well, I think obviously the rationalisation was uh, certainly in the processing sector, you know, uh, encouraged new capacity. Uh, I mean, the origins of Australian Meat Holdings, uh, which was a, an amazing concept to try and bring three or four companies together 
and rationalise their capacity, close those plants that were the uh, least efficient and maximise throughput and, uh, in, in the ones that were most efficient. It was all about uh, just reducing costs and maximising you know, your fixed costs. Um, and um, you know that, that fed throughout the industry where, again, the, all of the... Uh, plants that had been built in the in the 50s and 60s, you know, uh, those that weren't efficient were did close down, and uh, you had a reinvestment uh, renovations into plants to make them much more efficient. And, and I think that certainly was to the benefit of the overall industry. And of course, I think the, the industry has also become much more sophisticated. Oh, of course, uh, so look, more, you've just uh, got you've just got to look at the, uh, the the extraordinary growth of the feedlot industry and what it contributes to the beef economy now. Well, interesting. That was another aspect. That was quite interesting. Um, the early investments in the feedlot industry prior to the cattle crash, um, it was the Australian and it took most of the risk and therefore bore most of the losses. But the, while the Japan uh, trade, uh, the LIPC, I believe, started their tenders again back in late 1975, it took a long time to rebuild the Japanese trade back to uh, to where it had been prior to, to the crash. But part of that was to encourage Japanese uh, importers and end users to, in fact, invest in the Australian industry so they carried some of the risk. And, of course, I think, pardon me, I think you saw a lot of um, Japanese investment over the, the subsequent uh, subsequent years. But yes. I guess one of the casualties of that time was, was that a lot of the chilled technology and the cold chain management that had existed prior to the crash uh, was largely lost in the post-crash market in Japan when it did re- start to uh, rebuild again was largely frozen for, for some time until uh, the chill uh, business could be confident enough to get back on the track again. Stephen, as broad as the uh, industry is these days, uh, both in its sale and its domestic diversity, could such a price crash happen again? Look, I don't think there's any, uh, there's no such thing as never and no, no guarantees. Certainly no control over the sort of political events that help to um, trigger this whole issue. But, and also Australian industry is a, a global player. You know, over 70% of beef production still goes uh, export and as a global player, I think you're never immune to global events and trends. But I think we're a much more sophisticated industry today than in 1973, uh, much more diversified set of markets. Marketers need to be nimble and be customer and market uh, trend focused. And I think uh, there's a lot of uh, experience and built-in resilience these days uh, to changing market requirements. So, sure, um, I think in the international market, problems do occur and you have no control over those. But I think uh, today we have a a premium uh, quality product with an excellent reputation uh, that consumers around the world are willing to pay that little bit extra for that always is uh, a real positive uh, whenever international disruptions come and occur uh, and product needs to be redirected, building into other markets. So could it happen? Well, I suppose it could, but I think producers uh, should be very uh, proud of the fact that the processing sector and export sector today is much more sophisticated and well-trained, technology-driven industry um, that would hopefully uh, foresee some of these things coming and be able to, to manage it all accordingly. Stephen Martin, thanks for your wonderful contribution to our podcast special on the great cattle price crash of the 70s. Great to have you on the grill for Beef Central. No worries. Thanks a lot, Kerry. Time for a quick break. We'll be back in a moment after this brief message from our sponsors, Elenco Animal Health. 
Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. Welcome back, and now with more on the great cattle price crash. Let's check the memory of Bruce Redpath, an agent down in Victoria, and he was there in the 70s for the start of the great cattle price crash. Bruce, welcome. You're on the grill. Oh, thanks, Gary. Now, Bruce, yep, you, were a, you. you were a young agent when this uh, price crash occurred, what they call the great cattle crash of the 70s. What would be your earliest memory of prices dropping like that? Um, Kerry, I was a, an up-and-coming young auctioneer for Australian Mercantile Land and Finance Company, AMLNSs. We're now an in-new market. And the, the first memories were, I suppose, that it was mid-70s and we had cattle coming to the sale of one week were making $300. We work on bullets. I say bullets that we we had a, a, a grazier from Yay, Switzerland, the name of the property at Yay, and he sent down a lane of lane of bullets, which would be a hundred odd, which was a big consignment. And they got up to sell the first pen. My uh, my boss and Barmer got up to sell the first pen, and he asked three twenty for them, three hundred and twenty dollars a head, and uh, somebody yelled out two eighty, and he went to two hundred eighty six. And anyway, Mister Davis, who owned the cattle, passed them in. Oh. And uh, not only that pen, but the whole lane. And he took them home. Now, we went back, and I'm trying to remember, we went back, well, Ian Barman and I did, and took Anglis there on the property some months later, and they took $84.50 for them ahead. Now, the crash sort of happened quicker than than I can remember. It just sort of happened. Uh, There wasn't a great, there wasn't any, Warning that this was going to happen, and it just fell quickly. And I think the, about seventy four, seventy five, it was just an absolute disaster. And we were—I just remember the prices. I just couldn't believe that the what cattle were making. I don't know whether you want me to go through some of the categories, but it was—it was just amazing. And then for us to keep our jobs, we we were sent out selling. As I was a young auctioneer, I was doing car auctions for the government and. Um, state rivers and water supply auctions and gas and fuel and things like that once or twice a week uh, to, to keep our jobs because there was some, you know, the cattle were making nothing and sheep and lambs, of course. Yeah. So, uh, so Bruce, what would be a, a what would be a young steer? What would that go for in the crash days? All right. Well, for instance, say that the well, I remember bullocks, really good bullocks, and Newmarket was supplied by South Gippsland and the Yay area and, and, and cattle out of the river arena and so on had come down by train and whatever. But the South Gippslanders were renowned for um, having prime bullocks and um, their bullocks were making $90. So they'd, And the bullocks were sold on Thursdays in those days and they'd walk down to the store pens and replace them for 25 to, to $30 um, for good, you know, really well, uh, say, 18-month-old Hereford or Angus Tears, mainly Herefords in those days, of course. Not like the Angus of today, but uh, and and wiener calves, uh, as in eight or nine months old, are only making oh, you know, 15, 18 bucks. Yeah, so uh, it was just 
I know, I've been told the price has halved and halved again and halved again after that. It was just uh, yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. Say from about 1974 through to 77, I think 76 and 77 were the worst uh, or the lowest. And, and the butchers, they, they only had to bid above um, pit price to get the, to get the cattle. And getting onto the dairy side of things, most of the choppers and that went into the pits because they they didn't have any cover on them as far as meat's concerned or more value. So they were they, the farmers. I think it was ten dollars they got to shoot them. Mm, you talk them about the pit pits. And, now this is a big pit that someone's dozed out, and you're shooting cattle and dumping the dead cattle in the in the pits. Yeah, the shire, the shire or council uh, provided a pit. Or the area, and they dug a big pit with a bulldozer or whatever, and the farmers would take their cattle there and, and shoot them. There was no electronic tags or anything like that, so they'd shoot shoot the animal and get paid paid to put them in the pit because there was just absolutely no demand for meat whatsoever. In the worst part of it, Bothwicks, for instance, were putting the good hind quarter cuts into bags and taking it to the Melbourne Zoo to give to the lions. That's amazing. So story, you know, Bothwicks are only one. One operation. What was Morgan's doing? What were Greenham's doing? What was Angler's doing? And and uh, and so on. So and Bruce, uh, the big pits. What what number of cattle would go into one pit? Good question, Terry. Look, I'm I'm not sure. I, I was in Newmarket. Thank goodness I wasn't out in the bush. The, the agents that I know and speak about this these days, I said it was just the cruelest thing to to have to see a man take his cattle to the to a pit and and shoot them and put them in a pit. The same with the sheep and sheep and lambs and Look how many they well bulldozers dig dig a pretty solid sort of a sizable hole, wouldn't they? Oh, look, and, it um, must have been an awful sight and an awful feeling. Two or three hundred head, I suppose. Yeah, you know? an awful sight, an awful, an awful sight. feeling for graziers to watch those cattle. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. the, the same feeling's probably just been experienced by by the northern New South Wales and southern Queensland drought uh, two and a half or three years ago. The people just having to get rid of their stock because they couldn't feed them. Well, here it was. Wasn't that they couldn't feed them to a degree? They they just there was something they were valueless. And an interesting thing, I, I, there was no feedlots in those days like there is now. So there's, there was no demand for the, the product overseas whatsoever. And we only really dealt from memory with Japan and probably a bit of the United States with trim. And we, we weren't flying. You couldn't fly cuts into our local um, Southeast Asia and Asian markets and. And Europe, like we do today, and it was also a huge cattle numbers. We had a lot, I think, thirty something million, and uh, we had a drought, so nothing was in the favour of the job whatsoever. Did mm. did your producers and and yourself did you have any idea why this was happening? Well, we were told it was because there was a complete world crash in oil, and what I can't get my head around why. Just to, I suppose it's. 20-odd years of age, you just took that on board and were told that and go on with your job trying to keep it. But that was the uh, the, the reason. I think there was a, just a, a complete economic downturn and no demand or nobody had any money to, to, to trade. Um, I think that's that's where it was. And, and um, yeah, just it, it was amazing. Um, and then it turned as quick. It went the other way. You know, I can just an interesting couple of stats in, in 1973, the South Barook Herefords were probably one of the biggest Hereford studs in Australia. The, the, the bulls averaged $3,103. Right, and then by 1976, it got down to 1500 
1977, they were $1,500. And Mr. Allen, Jim Allen of South Barook, he wanted to buy a new Toyota Land Cruiser in 1974. And in 1974, his bulls averaged 5,100. And his Land Cruiser with the trading cost $3,600. <laughs> so the bull sales here, the Angus bull sales around here this year is sort of averaging around fourteen or 15,000. Pretty hard to buy a decent lawnmower for that. Exactly. Whereas a, a, land cruiser, a land cruiser use a hundred thousand, if you know what I mean. But it's interesting. The worst two years of the bull sales for South Brook were, were nineteen seventy six and seventy seven. Bruce, Bruce, I've been a great pleasure to speak with you. Wonderful memories, or some terrible memories, actually, of the yeah. of the great price crash of the of the seventies. Our next guest is going to talk about why it happened on a on an international sense. But thanks for your time oh, thank on the you. today, Bruce. Well done. Good, thanks, thanks, Gary. Let's take a uh, short break now to hear a message from our podcast partner, Alenco Animal Health. This podcast is brought to you by CompuDose, a proven way to maximise growth rates in grass-fed cattle. CompuDose allows you to target and achieve specifications for most major markets, including MSA grading and feedlots. Contact Alenco and find out how CompuDose can grow your beef operation. Results may vary depending on nutrition. Always read and follow label directions. You're back on the grill. And now, a recollections from a bloke whose family was hit hard by the crash, but survived and thrived to create one of the biggest privately owned cattle empires in Australia, Don McDonald. Welcome. You're on the grill. Thank you, Terry. Good to be here. And we're talking about the great cattle crash of the 1970s. Uh, you were uh, carving out what was to become a very significant cattle empire in those days. In the 70s, crash, was there a warning to beef producers of what was coming? In hindsight, I guess there was the uh, knowledge that things could have collapsed, but I don't think there was any warning to the average producer that it was going to collapse the way it did as quickly as it did. But certainly our numbers had built up to, I think it was somewhere around 32 million, which was probably the highest they've ever been. And our uh, population in Australia was only about 13 million at the time. So they were some signals, but a lot of the other things that uh, happened that caused the storm, carry. but I don't think the average raise here was really uh, prepared for it. So you had, no, you had no comprehensions of the international events and how the repercussions were going to be felt through the, uh, the Australian, indeed the world beef industry. Well, I think we had some idea that things weren't good. I mean, at that time, there was an oil shock. I think oil went from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel, which frightened the world. Seems insignificant today, doesn't it? But um, as I say, uh, interest rates were going up into the high teens, and I think ultimately got up to the 20s. And, um, uh, yeah, there were those things round that I suppose we should have been more aware of the ramifications, but I, as I say, I don't think the average grazier saw it as seriously um, uh, as serious a thing as it was. Now, your beef business was growing then. How much of your beef at that stage in those early days, the 70s, mid-70s, how much of the beef you produced was destined for export? Well, look, a lot. America was our big buyer, of course, at the time, and there was a great demand for the hamburger meat, and a lot of the Western grass-fed beef, I think, went there. But certainly in those days, we weren't as sophisticated as we became in latter years when we had our own labels and were exporting to Asia, to Japan and Korea particularly. 
Um, so, um, not so sophisticated, but a large part was going for export, no doubt, to the US. So, were you selling your cattle through local yards as well? Uh, through local uh, meatworks, uh, local uh, slaughterhouses, yes. We weren't doing any uh, uh, processing ourselves, uh, but we would always uh, direct sellers to the abattoirs. We were never big users of the sale yard, right. so uh, we were, you know, direct sellers, really, Kerry. So you got some warning that the sale yards might have uh, indicated to you, but when you phoned your buyer from the meatworks, they wouldn't have had good news for you. No, it was bad news very quickly, and uh, I uh, can remember I was just starting off. We had uh, just uh, been married and uh, bought our first property, our home property where we live now, and had a considerable debt. And uh, when that news came through, and uh, as I say, my father thought one of the best mobs of bullets he had ever sold, and uh, we were offered, uh, I think it was 10 or 11 cents a pound for them, which brought them back at about... 65 to 70 dollars a head and uh, the cows were way underneath that and in fact uh, a lot of people selling cows at the time had to send a check after them to pay the freight wow. so that's how quickly and dramatically it went Terry. so that, how many how many bullocks in that lane or load well in that particular load about 600 600 bullocks and you and you yeah yeah now, now could you give me a rough guess of what 600 bullocks might fetch these days on the market? Uh, well, you know, an average grass-fed bullock today, uh, I'm guessing, but they're bringing probably around that uh, uh, a good bullock, $2,500, and uh, <laughs> in that day it was worth $66 a head. Wow, that's extraordinary. Now, I've heard tales of some very, very dreadful things occurring out in, in cattle country because of the overstock. Now, as you mentioned, the 33 million head, that's the biggest I think I can recall the herd ever being. Did you have to resort to uh, to shooting cattle or anything like that? No, we were very fortunate, Kerry. As I said earlier, we had just bought uh, Devoncourt, our home property, and uh, we bought it unstocked from the Scottish Australian Company. And we were very fortunate that uh, we were able to move cattle uh, from our neighbouring properties onto Devoncourt, which was experiencing an amazing season. And I think the thing that stuck with the beef industry most through that time was the good seasons across Queensland. And uh, they broke in the early 70s and ran through for most of the 70s for most of the state. And uh, that enabled us to hang to our herd. And uh, as I said to my father at the time, if we sold everything we owned, we wouldn't pay the debt we've got, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which was a pretty frightening experience for a young married couple. And uh, but he said to me that uh, he could remember in the 20s when the meatworks didn't open for 12 months. And he said, you couldn't get rid of your cattle, you couldn't de-stock. So he said, this, this, yeah, we can at least get rid of them. It's not as bad as it could be, which was a great lesson to me and uh, something that you know I've carried in the back of my mind uh, forever, that there are always situations that uh, can get tougher and have been tougher and you've got to learn to, you know, live with them and uh, and uh, focus on what you do and do it well and you'll usually come through it, Kerry. What about what about the local community, the agents, the truckies, the, even the meatworks and the, the yards, etc.? What happened to those areas and the people working in them? Yeah, look, fortunately, uh, people did still keep sending stock, even though there wasn't much money in it. Uh, so 
the truckies and the truckies weren't in the same scale as they are now. Of course, we're used to seeing six decks trundling down the roads, and uh, that wasn't the case then. They were just, you know, double deckers were just coming in, and uh, uh, but generally the small communities felt it hard because people tightened up. There wasn't money round, and uh, so the local towns, you know, did it hard as they do in droughts and other tough times. But um, they're pretty resilient and they went and got other jobs and worked. But uh, it was tough. Everyone tightened their belt, that was for sure, Terry. And the, and the property values for the sheep and cattle properties of Western Queensland, they, they well, must have been impacted, surely. They were. And I think for that period of time, you know, there was not much uh, going on. I wouldn't like to be quoted on it. I, my memory on property sales certainly we lost interest we had one with a big enough debt and we weren't looking around at the time but it impacted everything sure they were just very difficult to get anyone to uh, to come and look at properties i do remember that but just what the values were um i forget but they were they were very very minuscule compared to what the values that are floating around today did you hear any tales of how the bank managers were behaving towards their clients in those days <laughs> Well, the bank managers were all uh, all extraordinarily worried, but I don't remember a lot of foreclosures at that time. Um, I think the bank managers uh, were taking a longer-term view in, in our experience anyway, and we certainly would have been one of those in the firing line at the time for, uh, for possible, possible action, but... Uh, they never suggested that. They just didn't want to take over all the properties in Western Queensland and uh, wanted everyone to stick with it. But as I say, the, the seasons were good and uh, people could let their their herds hang on. They uh, they weren't in the position of having to sell uh, the numbers that they may have been if there'd been a drought on, as has happened in the last you know few years in Queensland. But the problems in the industry went on for a long, long time. I... Stephen Martin, who wrote that wonderful book, uh, The World on a Plate, was, is telling me that uh, the the European Union, or the common market, I think it was called in those days, uh, got together what was to become a beef mountain, which was subsidised when they bought it, then they subsidised when they sold it, and they were competing against Australia in markets all over the world. That is true. There was a mountain of beef built up, and uh, that did cause a problem as well, and uh, We've known about mountains of wool and mountains of beef, and uh, I think that uh, anyone who thinks that they should go into subsidising industries can well remember what happened when uh, wool prices were, you know, floor prices were put in and the ultimate damage that it did. But that you're absolutely right, there was a mountain of beef that had to be liquidated somehow or other, and uh, all of those things impacted for a considerable period of time. Gary, that's true. But in, in sometimes in hard times, good things come out of it. And I get the impression that although the crisis in the beef industry went on for 10, 12 or 15 years, some good situations appeared and were created for the future of the beef industry. Yes, Gary, I, I guess that could be right. certainly brought a lot of efficiencies about. It made people uh, much more aware of their cost structures and... Uh, how they handle their herds and uh, they realised then that quality, I think, was very important in the industry and uh, it was the start, I think, of the good genetics and particularly in Northern Australia, the Brahman industry coming in and uh, transforming the Northern industry from a 
really a harvesting operation where cattle, Herefords and Shorthorns were just about breeding enough to keep a turn off of animals, of uh, steers, but not many females. And then Brahmins were introduced and uh, suddenly the herds became much more profitable. There were a lot more females being turned off. Cattle were surviving a lot better. So that was a major, major progress of those periods of time yeah. in northern Australia. The uh, better genetics going through the herds. Yes, the, uh, the, the seminal moment when the Boss Indicus breeds uh, came into northern Australia. And also the it growth was. of the uh, feedlot industry, etc. And even later on, even the, the live exports all... Uh, tended to put a flaw in the domestic price of cattle, so it was all go from there. Yeah, it did, and I think the live export, as we've seen for Northern Australia, is just so important, and we saw the damage that it did when it was closed off for a short period of time, but uh, yeah, it's still very, very important to the Northern beef industry, and I think it will be for some time yet, but certainly the feedlot industry has been... Uh, amazing thing to see the kilograms of beef per head that we're turning off now. Uh, you know, the average uh, slaughter weight of cattle's increased dramatically because of the uh, the benefits that we're seeing through the feedlots, Gary. Don, any long-term messages uh, fr- from the beef crash and the inevitable question, could it happen again? Well, Gary, any, anyone who lived through the 70s and, and saw, you know, just what could happen, and how long it went on for, will I'm sure be, you know, just a little more cautious. Um, I mean, it's lovely to have the confidence that we're seeing in the industry at the moment. The, the prices are strong for uh, for beef and for lamb and for mutton and uh, for the export, live export, it's all really good. And uh, land prices are reflecting it. But I think we also have to remember that we have seen interest rates go up to 20% before, and I don't think that's about to happen. I think that you know there are factors that will probably steady that, but that can, can always happen. And then you know uh, debt, I think, is always something that you've got to have to grow, and uh, anyone who's bought more properties understands that. But you've got to keep uh, a balance of you know what you can handle and uh, what you foresee the future being. So a bit of a crystal ball there, Kerry, and I don't know that anyone's got a perfect answer for it, but I'm always an optimist, and I think that we will ride this through. I think there will be a flattening of prices at some stage, but certainly there are nice margins for producers, sheep and cattle in inland Australia, and that's what inland Australia does best. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm an optimist. I think we're going to survive it okay and come out the other end in good, strong shape. Don McDonald, uh, wonderful to hear the optimism from, much, from such a learned veteran of the industry. It's uh, great to have you on Beef Central on the grill. Thanks very much, Kerry. Pleasure to be there. Cheers now. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health. <laughs>